This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. Hello and welcome to Give and Tote Cannabis Conversations, the show that aims to elevate the conversation about cannabis to a higher level. I'm your host, Paul, and today I'm so excited to welcome B. Muhammad, Head of Patient Advocacy and Engagement at Astrid Dispensary in South Yarra in Melbourne. Me, I'm a patient of Astrid, and I absolutely love the work they're doing in this space, providing a really special experience for patients and for people that are just interested in medical cannabis. And people like B, in her role, are so essential to this community developing and helping people understand what plant medicine can do and fighting the fights that need to be fought. We talk about heaps of cool stuff today. We talk about her role at Astrid, her history with Scriptwise, an organization addressing some of the issues with pharmaceutical medications, her time with Canopy Growth, her own relationship with cannabis, the Astrid Assembly, Drive Change, TAC, Workers' Comp. We go through a lot and it's a great conversation. So if you like what you hear, make sure you follow us on Instagram at Give and Toke. Support the show by giving us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify or just tell a friend. But for now, please enjoy the show. It's a shame this is an audio-only podcast because you're repping Astrid there proudly. I do love that staff uniform. It's pretty rocking. It is. And, yeah, well, we're actually going to have more more retail merch next year. So so watch this space. But, yeah, love, love our uniform. Some people say it's a bit cult-ish, but, hey, you know. <laughs> nah, very stylish to me. You know, the khakis, the white shoes, everything. Yeah, sure, cultish, but the best elements of cults, the style. Absolutely. Nah, thank you, Paul. We're going to go into greater detail about Astrid in this episode. And as a patient, I love what you guys are doing. But before we do that, I want you to describe kind of in a nutshell what your role is there. Yeah, sure. So Astrid is a dispensary, I guess. We're very unique to have my role as part of the dispensary. So I'm a head of patient advocacy. And what that means is um, outside of the educating of patients around medicinal cannabis, uh, we also help patients with anything that they've been discriminated for when it comes to their medications. So I do everything from helping patients with drug driving laws to like workers' compensation to being drug tested at work and being suspended from work. And we also work with a few veterans who are still trying to push for mental health to be covered. So pretty much in a nutshell, any patient or anyone that's been discriminated for taking their medications, I sort of come in and, and facilitate both at an individual level, but also I try to sort of push the systemic stuff around it as well. Very cool. And I know that you've worked in the field for quite some time. You were the CEO of Scriptwise. Let's talk a little bit about your work with Scriptwise and what the mission of that organization was and is. Yeah, sure. So Scriptwise, it was such a true honor because it was an organization that was actually put together by families who have lost like, you know, big kids or family members to like prescription medication overdose due to the overprescribing of medications such as 
opioid painkillers, antidepressants, and benzodiazepines. So what we saw in America was actually happening happening in Australia as well. And as we all know, um, we all remember the day when Heath Ledger passed away, when he overdosed on his medication. So it was actually Heath's dad who started the organisation. And I heard of it just, you know, I was working in Canberra in the federal government and I just wanted to come back to Melbourne because there's only so many years of Canberra that you can deal with. I've lived in Canada and Canberra is still the coldest place I've ever been to. It's insane. (laughs) It is insane. I remember the first day I moved there was in July and when I woke up to drive to Parliament House, my windscreen was covered in snow. Yeah, it's wild. So Heath's dad, after what happened um, to Heath, he had thousands of families write to him and said, this happened to me or this happened to my mom or my dad, and he actually invested to start this advocacy organisation. So my role as the CEO in that time was to actually bring this issue to at the forefront of, I guess, governments and health ministers because we were really starting to see the over-prescribing of some of these medications. And it was really heartbreaking to see what was happening within the medical system because on a weekly basis, you know, we used to receive a lot of the coroner's report of what happened with multiple toxicity of pharmaceutical drugs. And I just could not understand how that was happening in Australia, that, you know, people could be prescribe or over-prescribe all these medications. They've been on it for 10, 15 years. And it's always from something that's traumatic, you know, like be it chronic pain or an accident or a surgery from a hospital. So it was really an eye-opener for me. I've always worked in health policy. But that, to me, I always thought with dependency issue, I always was naive to think it was, you know, like we have a heroin epidemic or whatever. But the numbers were crazy. And yeah, it was really, really, really shocking to see the extent of that issue here. I think it's something like 2,000 Australians die every year due to complications with pharmaceutical drugs or overdose from pharmaceutical drugs. It's a conversation we we ignore in a way that we have our head in the sand about because a lot of people rely on pharmaceutical medications. So it's kind of like, we'll take the bad with the good because you know ultimately people are benefiting from. But there is this kind of nefarious seedy side And I think it also links to our inability to have reasonable conversations about people's mental health, suicide, and things like that. Because even up until recently, I thought that Heath Ledger's death was a suicide overdose. It was an accidental overdose from multiple toxicity, from getting multiple prescriptions from different doctors in different countries. Now, when you really unpack that, there's a lot of accountability missing from that. So why has that become such an issue for us? Why do we have our head in the sand about this? Why are we so scared of cannabis, yet so okay with things that are killing people? Oh, that's a big question, I think. Answer it right now. Solve it this second. (laughs) No, that's like, you know, that's the reason why I left Scriptwise after close to five and a half years because families, when they lose someone from the accidental overdose, all they get at the end of the day is a coroner's report, is a piece of paper that says that there was over-prescribing, there was no communications between practitioners and this person is dead. And the family has to live with that for the rest of their lives. And their child is never going to come back from that. And for me, it was like there was no accountability. There were even families who were trying to go to APRA to sort of 
whole practitioners who were over-prescribing, who knew that the dosing that they were providing for that person was really to a point where it needed to be tapered off. But no one ever took accountability, you know. So why that's happening, I think that's a very good question. I don't want to get too political, but maybe I will. I think we've got to look at the systems that exist within our healthcare system. Why is it that doctors don't really know how to deal with a chronic pain patient? Why are they not investing the time to actually walk with the patient and understand how to treat them properly? Why are we always going for the quickest solution? We can go really deep into it, but to me, the reason why there's no accountability is because our healthcare system is at the moment about the easiest way of treating a person. And that's why I believe that cannabis is amazing and slowly shifting the system because to most of the doctors and clinics, or especially the ones that Astrid work with, your initial consult is half an hour. You know, we really go through your history. We really talk about how you're feeling. We really talk about any underlying issues. And it's funny because a lot of patients, I remember when we first opened, I remember the first, you know, few weeks where we had a, a doctor in the dispensary. People would come out after seeing her and just in tears because they were like, this is the first time a practitioner has listened to me, have trusted me, have understood where I was coming from. And then that was when I was like, okay, there's hope. That's such a great kind of point to make and why we'll go deeper into Astrid as this episode progresses, because the work you are doing there is really unique, is really special and is greatly benefiting people. So I can't wait to talk more about that. But the next thing I do want to talk about is your time working for Canopy Growth. Canopy Growth at the time you worked for them was Canada's biggest cannabis company. So what was your understanding on what was your learning of cannabis through them oh my god canopy me and lisa we always talk about how we were forever be grateful for that opportunity we we were probably at canopy in a really good time this was when they were growing before they were unfortunately bought up by an alcohol company recently but we were there when they were growing and they were still doing some great stuff so my role was i got on board as part of the government relations team but when I went to Canada for my training, I was able to spend time with both the government relations as well as the social justice team, which personally, the reason why I wanted to get into cannabis as well was just that whole aspect around social justice. And I'm sure we'll briefly talk about that as well. But when I went to Canada, it was so amazing to hear how far they've come from the medical regime to the recreational regime and and to me it was the biggest learning opportunity I was only there for three weeks but every day I was constantly overwhelmed so overwhelmed not just because of the scale of what canopy was and I remember that time as well they just built a facility to do the R&D around drinks as well so it was it was just all really fascinating and everyone that I spoke to was so passionate about the plant it was crazy like look it's a different industry there I think because people who work in it are like really cannabis people like it's their life you know whereas in Australia we do get a mix of like 
people from, you know, I guess the tech pharmaceutical industry coming in. And that's not disregarding anything. But to me, like the way Canadians spoke of the plan, I was like, holy shit, I need to read about this more. I need to educate myself. So I remember walking into one of our dispensaries in Vancouver when I landed and you walk into the shop and people were like, hi, how are you? What sort of high are you after today? It was just a normal conversation. You you saw people of all age and colour and it was crazy. To me, I've always struggled with, I guess, the drinking culture that we have here in Australia. I moved here when I was 19 from Singapore and, you know, never really drank in my life. And so when I came here, I've always been like, shit, like people drink so much. And I started using cannabis when I was 24. and oh my god like I felt like a teenager when I first used cannabis you <laughs> yeah. lie to your friends or like you sort of don't talk about it openly and so for me going to Canada I was like and when you go to a pub as well like more people were just smoking and having non-alcoholic drinks and I was just like this is what it should be no wonder Canadians are so nice it all makes sense to me just anecdotally speaking you know i experienced the 2020 pandemic in canada with recreational cannabis available returned to australia for 2021 for the the secondary probably third fourth fifth sixth lockdowns and i had a personal struggle in that time compared to when i had cannabis available to when i didn't and alcohol was the option but i also noticed the difference between my friends' moods. I noticed people becoming okay with drinking a whole bottle of wine every night and that kind of being normal and, you know, that becoming meme-worthy versus in Canada, people having, you know, maybe five joints a night. They weren't having the same struggles the next day, a few weeks later, a few months on. I noticed friends struggling to wean themselves off booze. No one was really like, oh God, I'm addicted to these joints now. I've got to go back to work. It was a very different experience. And so that is something I've had to reckon with. You know, I grew up loving binge drinking. If I knew a young person that was consuming at the level I was, I'd be very concerned about them. But that was just the normal thing to do in the mid 2000s. As I got older, I realized alcohol was truly a depressant, would make me feel bad. But now coming home after two years of practically not drinking, you mentioned the R&D for the drinks. I completely replaced alcohol with low dose cannabis infused beverages. It was incredible. I drink as much as my friends on a camping trip, who didn't have a hangover the next day. So that is a huge cultural element that we are struggling to get past. And I think it's a big problem that we have. Oh, massive. I think you like absolutely spot on in everything you said. And when you were talking about that and drinking as a young person, I remember in our early days as well, when we opened, there was this really young chief that came in, she was 22. And I remember sitting down at the, you know, the lounge area that we have for patients in the dispensary and she was just looking down the whole time. You know, she was very, like, shaky and agitated and she had been on benzo since she was 15. I was like, how is it that we're even medicating our kids that young? And it was the start of lockdown that she realised how dependent she was and how long she'd been on it. And then I remember she was finally prescribed CBD and the second time she came back into the dispensary and I saw her and I was just like, how are you going? And when she looked me into the eye for the first time, I actually almost cried. Like it was for me, like we're so disconnected because of the drinking, the medications and everything. And people don't realize like cannabis, it's like 
doesn't do that, you know. So, so yeah, I'm glad you spoke about that. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of whataboutism, but it does come up quite a lot with cannabis. Like if we are so accepting and normalizing harmful things, well, what about cannabis? You know, we know that it doesn't do as much harm. There's still the potential if you're young, if you're predisposed to psychosis and things like that, there is potential for harm there. But, you know, even Dan Andrews frustratingly is talking about how he's not wanting to legalize cannabis because of the work they're doing with drug psychosis, because it would be disrespectful to people with drug psychosis. Well, what about the disrespect to all the people who are getting multiple benefits from cannabis? And so the conversation is frustrating. We are stuck. We're pretty backwards still. You know, we like to think we're progressive in Victoria. We're just more progressive than some of the other states. That's really the reality of it. But the work people like you are doing is so, so important. And I'm so grateful that you exist, that Astrid exists, and this is getting done. It makes me feel good. No, I mean, you said the word stuck, and I was like, I really... I don't know if it's December and the end of the year, I sort of felt a bit defeated this year because I do feel we're a bit stuck at the moment. You know, the drive driving laws, and I'm sure we'll get on to those sort of topics, but even the whole legalisation, like I was really shocked with, you know, sort of Dan Andrews' position in that because he was so supportive of medicinal cannabis and we were the first state to legalise it. And there was so much promise of an industry. There was even an industry plan that the Department of Economics came up with, you know. So I was like, this is amazing. I'm in the right place. And I really feel stuck from an advocacy, from a policy perspective. But I think a lot of people don't realise that Australia is very conservative when it comes to drug reform. Big time, big time. I think that is a shock. We have this kind of good PR internationally that we're easygoing, we're laid back, but we're actually incredibly conservative and uptight. And I think it's good to to reckon with that and say it out loud. You know, Daniel Andrews does get credit as a progressive premier, but really due to the work that other people do. You know, I have been a supporter of his. However, it does become frustrating that, you know, Victorians would sit at home following good health advice for two years and making sacrifices that weren't being made in other parts of this country, all in the name of good health. And then, you know, Dan Andrews will, will pose in a white lab coat at a medical facility, talk about the economic benefits for medical cannabis, but then won't come to the table with reasonable discourse about cannabis. And, you know, the lack of good opposition in Victoria is part of the problem for that. So we should never stop fighting, even if, you know, the guy that we support is in charge, there's still healthy challenges to be made and a lot of pushback to be made. And I'm constantly trying to talk to my MPs who are just really not interested. They're in safe labor seats and they're not interested. So again, thank you for the work that you're doing because it's symbiotic. We inspire each other to kind of keep going because it does become incredibly defeating at times. Oh, absolutely. As they would say in Parliament, here, here. It's one of those things, you know, I remember prior to the recent Victorian elections, like patients are like, what can we do? How do we push for this? How do we change the drive driving laws? And I think people forget the power of the vote. They really do. I always say to patients, you know, if you've been impacted by the drive driving laws, write to your local MP because you writing a letter is actually equivalent to like 100 votes. So when one person is actually taking the time to write a letter about an issue that is impacting their lives, you know, they actually do need to respond. So imagine if there were 10 letters or 12 letters. So I think we are getting maybe a bit comfortable as a society where we're like, okay, well, I want change to happen but I'm not going to push for it. So everything you said, thank you. Well, thank you for sort of being a part of this movement because I do genuinely feel like 
the legalization of cannabis will transform how society thinks as well. Well, you spoke about your personal use of cannabis beginning in your kind of early to mid 20s. Talk to us about that. What is your personal relationship with cannabis? I think people do want the people working in cannabis to have a healthy relationship with it. I don't think it's like any other commodity where, yeah, you could probably sell Ferraris if you only drive a Toyota. You know, you could probably still do that. Not in cannabis. So what's your relationship with cannabis? Sure. So I actually was born in Singapore, right? So as, you know, most of us will know, drugs in Singapore is a big no-no. And drug, yeah, drug education for me was teachers telling stories about what happens if you take drugs? So you end up in a prison system, you get caned, or in some instances, if you possess drugs, you get caned to death in Singapore. Wow. <laughs> so you can imagine me being a 19-year-old from Singapore. I knew I had to move somewhere because I was always really different. And sort of came here, did that whole, like, I'm going to study and focus on studying and then I became 23 and I was exposed to meeting more Australians and a few Australians who smoked cannabis and, you know, did other drugs. And I remember my first time smoking cannabis. I was 23. No one had even educated me about it. It was my first time smoking a joint. And I took a puff and then an hour or so later, or even less, I started, my heart rate was like increasing. I was at a bar and I was like, apparently I started crawling on, in the bar. <laughs> and That's not what a pub like, crawl is, B. That's a different <laughs> thing. <laughs> my girlfriend was like, it's the weed, just relax, let go, trust it. And I'm like. I was like, my parents are going to kill me. I've taken drugs. <laughs> They're going to know. <laughs> They're going to know. And I was like, I'm going to be jailed and came to death. Like all these conditioning, yeah. right, came up. And and my girlfriend just kept saying, B, firstly, stand up because we're going to get kicked out of this bar. <laughs> Don't stop crawling. So I stood up and then she was like, okay, I'm sorry. You have to go home. So she put me in the cab and then I got home and, and I actually got home and there was a little, you know, join and I was like, no, I'm going to do this again and I'm going to do it with what her advice was, was let go and allow the plant to sort of take effect. And, yeah, I smoked that little token and it was it was amazing. Like I literally felt better, I was really calm, but it was funny. So I fell asleep eventually. It was probably one of the best sleeps I've had. And I woke up the next morning. It was like, I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Drug education in Singapore was lying to me. <laughs> yeah. I was like, they lied to me. Like, you know, so... So that was my experience. So I've always sort of used it recreationally because I didn't enjoy, like alcohol never felt good of me. It always felt like poison. But for me, then when I was 26 as well, I had a, a minor surgery and this was in Canberra. And, you know, I said I didn't want any morphine or pain medications because I sort of grew up, my my I'm half Indian, so I've always had Ayurvedic medicine and they gave me tons of endone after the surgery and finding weed in Canberra was so hard. I was like, how do I find this? So, so it did help me then in terms of post-surgery as well. But me personally, I just prefer it. Like, you know, when I feel a bit defeated from work or, you know, I went through the last, like we all do the last two years, you know, with relationships ending and like 
the pandemic and lockdowns and how it affected my mental health. You know, cannabis was one of those things that I was like, I'm really passionate about because not only am I blessed to see what it's done for our patients, but I've really benefited from it as well. That's beautiful. I do think that kind of any adult that has stuck with it, you know, irrespective of a negative first experience is ultimately finding that therapeutic benefit. You know, that's where I have ended up as well, no matter the fact that, yeah, I kind of got into cannabis in a very Australian way that it was something extra to do while you were at a party. Like it was something to add on to your already kind of wasted night. But as you grow up, you start to realize, well, this actually increases my sensitivity. It actually creates an environment where I'm more in tune with myself, which isn't always conducive to partying or being around people that are super wasted or things like that. So we do eventually get to this point, no matter where we started where it is truly helpful and it really is improving our lives. And that's why we have these conversations because a lot of people are still yet to understand that it really does improve our lives. So that's beautiful. Um, you know, you mentioned Canberra. Canberra have gotten to this pretty good point where you it's way easier to get cannabis there than it ever has been as long as you grow it yourself. So for people that aren't aware, in Canberra, you can grow up to four plants if there's two people living on the property and you can possess it, consume it, use it in your own home without any penalties you can't sell it you can't gift it but it's a pretty great first step for somewhere in australia to be doing yeah absolutely i'm definitely you know supportive of homegrown i think you know there is definitely some aspect of the medical industry where we associate homegrown as recreational but i'm also all about the fact that if we allow you know like four plants is really reasonable they did that, I think, in New Zealand or even in Canada initially when there was a medical regime. You actually are able to grow your own plants as well, you know, if you're proven to use it medicinally. So that was a, an amazing first step in Australia, I have to say. But even with that happening in Canberra, to me, it's so bizarre that, you know, they sort of decriminalise homegrown and the drug driving laws, for example, is still not changed. So we are moving, but we're sort of back to the point we spoke about earlier. We make sort of one progress and then it sort of stops there. Like I always thought like, okay, it will be a bit of a domino effect, but then it's sort of like, okay, well, which state next, you know? So so definitely it's, it's, a, it's a huge step and I really, really want to see more states doing that because obviously the drug reform is the jurisdictional matter. And I really hope Victoria is next. I really, really do, because we don't hear enough of the stories of, you know, we had a patient who's from New Zealand, and I actually spoke about this on my previous podcast, and he, I think he had three plants and his house got raided. He actually was a medical patient as well, and he's now waiting to see if he's going to be deported back to New Zealand. So it's just like things like this, my biggest sort of struggle is we don't hear enough about how people like the policing of cannabis is it's insane here in Australia, but we don't hear about it because we don't report about it. And so people are not aware that really for three plants that you could potentially be deported or like really for a gram of possessing cannabis, you could go to jail or like you could have a, a possession of drug offense in your records. So it's just all these things. I'm like, come on, we have to shift the dial. Oh, there's still so much work to be done. And we are just at the whims of kind of 
grumpy police officers who are having a bad day right up to really bad laws and everything in between. So we are working against a lot. I sometimes feel like we take a step forward and we take two steps back with the punishments. So yeah, we get these new opportunities, but you do see a ramping up of punishment. You know, I've got kind of friends and longtime cannabis users who actually don't want any form of legalization or decriminalization because they're concerned that that will increase the police looking for people, you know, who are using cannabis, who are driving with cannabis. Instead of rethinking what the law are they might just actually hone in on people so you know that's an anecdotal argument but it is something to consider there there is still a lot of police effort resource and money going into giving us a hard time absolutely and i think you know we so focus on what's happening overseas like we think like oh it's a lot there's definitely a lot of policing around cannabis in in america but not here in australia and i'm like nah i was like all you have to do is just ask patients, you know, we, we obviously hear these stories at Astrid as well. So I think it's also people are oblivious to what's happening. And like you said, it's it's most police officers we've dealt with are grumpy and they don't even they don't even want to hear about it. We we always come from a place of educating. I never want to have a go at a police officer. Sometimes I've been very close to, but most of the time. I have to remember that the only way that we'll achieve change is through education, but... They have to be willing to listen. They have to be willing to listen. They're not even willing to listen and understand that this is now legalised, you know. So it's, it's a tough one, but we have to stay optimistic. We have to find a way to work with law enforcement agencies, and I think we are starting to see, you know, a few police officers who are patients and and they actually benefit from it and they go how can I change this within my my you know organization the first time I came to Astra to pick up my medicine there was a police car parked out the front and I walked around the block I walked past I kind of gave myself a little pep talk I'm like there's nothing wrong you're doing nothing wrong you're being prescribed but I still needed to go through that so I walked back the two police officers got out of the car and they were scoffing at the existence of Astra they were two young cops probably no older than me. I'm in my early thirties and they were laughing and making jokes. And I saw one of them do like, you know, kind of shaka ripping bong action. And they were laughing and kind of ribbing each other. It looked like two nine-year-old boys who had just seen 58,008 on a calculator saying boobs. Like it was, it was pretty offensive. So there is still a lot to deal with even at a street level. I was doing nothing wrong. I was going to a legitimate business and I still felt uncomfortable around the police on that occasion. So a lot of work to do. And I think that's a great kind of chance for us to jump into Astrid and let's talk more about Astrid and what you do there. That was my first time at Astrid. It's a, it's an incredible place. It makes me feel so excited about the future of cannabis. And I know that's part of the point of the aesthetic of Astrid, that people can walk in there, feel safe, feel impressed, feel comfortable, make this special, make this an experience for people. So obviously Astrid is a female led dispensary led by pharmacist Lisa Nguyen, who's an amazing person. How did you get to working at Astrid? How, oh my God. So I met Lisa day one in Canopy Grove. She she was the medical science liaison. I think she was the first MSL that Canopy hired. And on my first day, so I was, you know, going through my induction, Lisa was in there, the office, and she came through and she 
ran towards me. She gave me this biggest hug ever. And she was like, you must be B. And she's like, we're going to get along. And her dedication, her passion, like it was insane to see someone who was on the grounds. Even though I was government relations, I always spoke to Lisa because I wanted to know what was happening on the grounds. What were the issues? So we worked really closely together. She's always been an inspiration to me. And so one day, Lisa was frustrated. She was done hearing about how pharmacies didn't want patients in their pharmacy. Doctors were finding issues with finding the right pharmacy. She came to me and she goes, I'm going to do this. And I was like, what are you going to do? She goes, I'm going to start my own dispensary. I want to create what I saw in Canada. I want to create a space that people feel safe and respected and we can just talk about cannabis and patients can feel welcome and and she talked about the aesthetics and I just went I have to come with you so she was building it during COVID it was like the aesthetics of Astrid is all Lisa you know I remember one day we were standing trying to decide on the paint for the wall and she had three different shades of green and she's been staring at it for a month and she said to me which one do you prefer and I actually went I don't see a difference <laughs> so her deep like her like vision her you know all their studies how you feel in that space that's all Lisa and yeah I was so so grateful to have been able to be with her from day one because Canopy was a great opportunity. It was a great company to work with. I had amazing bosses in Canada who I was so lucky to learn from. But then to go back to the grassroots, to be able to talk to patients on a day-to-day, to be able to understand from the start to the end of the journey what their pain points are has been really, really cool. So it's a beautiful space and you know, we we genuinely love our patients. Like half of the patients I started talking to when we first opened are my friends now. And I actually remember looking at my photo from my birthday this year and I have four patients who are now my good friends. That's <laughs> like, really cool. Yeah, because we wanted community. We always wanted a community and we wanted, and, you know, that's why the Astrid Assembly started as well because, we were like, we just want to hang out with our patients because they mean so much to us as well. The Astrid Assembly was an incredible event. It was a patient and industry event where we came together. It was catered and styled as if it was a wedding basically it was such an immaculate event like I just I was so excited to be there I had a grin from ear to ear the whole night meeting people chatting to people legally vaping at an event was just mind-blowing for me you know this is what I was scared wouldn't exist when I came home you know I begrudgingly came home from Canada because my visa was up it affected my mental health to come home and not be able to continue these conversations, continue the work that I was doing, continue the learning, feeling comfortable about my cannabis use. But an event like that gave me life, gave me strength, gave me the desire to keep doing what I'm doing. So let's talk about that event and why that existed and what that does for the community. Sure. Oh my God. Assembly. Every time I talk about it, I'm you know, I was like, that was definitely one of the best events I feel in the industry. I know it's a biased opinion, but Lisa just came up with the idea because a lot of our patients were like, how do I meet other patients? You know, like even 
when some patients come in and then they start talking to each other, you know, and it's beautiful. And me and Lisa is like, man, like, you know, this is so cool that it's a space where people who don't know each other can just come in and connect. I've never gone to chemist warehouse and been like, so yeah, what are you picking up today? How's, how are those antidepressants going for you, man? I know. <laughs> but in Astrid, that's what you can do. I know. And Lisa was like, I'm going to do this event. And me and Sarah was sort of in charge of sort of supporting her for the event. But even me and Sarah were not aware of the scale until Lisa presented to us her vision. And I mean, the one thing Lisa said to me, because I was the MC at her wedding as well earlier this year, and she goes, B, the assembly is going to be bigger than my wedding. And I was like, wait, your wedding was pretty grand. <laughs> so, so yeah, so when she presented all the concept, the design, the flowers, the stage, me and Sarah, like our jaws were to the ground. We were like, what? is your brain like how do you come up with this but lisa i think i will forever give her the credit of pushing the industry to go a little bit further prior to the assembly it was so stressful because tga was issuing fines around advertising and stuff like that so we had companies that were so concerned about an event that put together patients and industry together right and Lisa's mentality on it was like, if we continue to stay conservative and scared, we will never be able to push the boundaries. And I'm like, that's my girl. <laughs> I was like, we cannot be scared. Like, of course, like we have to be cautious, but we can't just like become small as soon as the regulators are like clamping down on it, you know? So we were like, Lisa was like, no, nah, I'm not turning it because there were people who said you should just not even do the event. And Lisa was like, I am doing this no matter what. And I'm so proud of her. Like that day... <laughs> Try not to get emotional, but she is a good friend. So that day, like seeing her on stage, her telling her story, I was like, good on you for doing this and for for sticking to it no matter what, because we do we do it for the patients. We do it for them. Every person working in this industry is making some kind of societal or personal or value-based compromise or risk-taking. So we we need people in those positions of power and we need people being brave like Lisa was to to push past the TGA, kind of trying to get in people's way. And, and again, it's another whataboutism. We see the TGA kind of causing a lot of issues for prescribers, for companies and things like that, whilst circling back to script-wise, a lot of the offences in that field and over-prescribing of pharmaceuticals are just getting a blind eye turned to them. So we are very much up against it. Oh, absolutely. You know, and Lisa taught about every detail. Even when we got the venue, we were like, are we okay to vape on the balcony? She wanted to create a space where everyone could vape with their prescribed cannabis. So, you know, we were like, let's just make people feel that they can come to an awesome event and just do what we would be able to do if we were in Canada. But, you know, like, but not only that, you know, it was also about talking about the issues that we're still facing. So it was amazing. I mean, I was absolutely exhausted by the end of the night, but it was one of those events. And, you know, we debriefed the week after and Lisa was like, when do we do it again next year? And part of me was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Just let us rest for a minute. <laughs> yeah, and she wanted bigger. We, she was really thinking about, like, maybe a two-day assembly. And I was like, oh, my God, but... You know, like I said, her vision is constantly about 
let's keep making a huge deal about this because the more that we make it normal and sort of big, the more people will look at it as a valid sort of industry as well. Well, I don't want to put too much pressure on you, but I'm thinking 2025 Melbourne Exhibition Centre, you know, the full full venue, three days, accommodation options, <laughs> you're in charge of organising it, B. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think that actually does lead me to a question I'm curious about because I understand that Astrid are expanding. You know, obviously you have got patients all over the country that you mail out to and things like that, but soon going up to the kind of Northern Rivers region, going to be based in Byron Bay. How do you continue to give that high level of patient care, that quality level of care, engaging with patients and advocating for them as the business expands? How do you ensure that the quality remains the same whilst the business grows? Yeah, look, we are very, very big about people. We genuinely hire the best people. You have to be always repeating the experience that we curated day one when we opened the door, where it was just Lisa and Judy, and then it was Lisa, Judy, and me, and then, like, there was four, and then there was six, and then there's, what I think there's 22 now. And it's funny because people were doubting that, not doubting, but going, how are you going to do this? And then it's funny, again, when Lisa came up with the concept for the bar and store, we just looked at the proof of concept and the design a couple of weeks ago. I was like, how is this space looking 10 times better than the self Yara space? Not only that, like the pharmacist that we've hired, she's absolutely amazing as well. So I think the thing about quality is it's not even about quality. So Lisa in her sort of expansion and the leadership team and everyone in general as we expand, we're literally on a day-to-day basis of like how do we think about the patient from start to end. It's 100% it's hard and 100% it's easy not to be sort of carried away by the bottom line of the fact that we're growing and expanding and it's, you know, obviously benefiting from the industry. But Lisa is like... She, I mean, she still talks to every single employee and checks in with them. And I don't know how how many hours in a day she has, to be yeah. honest. I, mean, I only have 24. She seems to have 50 in a day. <laughs> but it's, we, we do our best. And that's why no matter what it's like, the education remains the same. The advocacy provider remains the same. And even like handling complaints and all that stuff, we're really trying to, ensure that we keep it to that level but that actually comes down to the people that you have I mean Astrid would not be what it is if not for the amazing employees that we have and we have pharmacists who are so passionate about this you know I mean most of them come from Chemist Warehouse so it's probably like they were just waiting for that opportunity to actually be in an environment where they could care a lot more they could care I know so I think it's I'm actually excited more than anything else. Even the bar and shop, you know, I said to Lisa, it's it's so good that we're in the Northern Rivers because, you know, I went to my first Mardi Gras this year after not being able to go the last few years. And, you know, I went with my dear friend, David Halpin, who's an ex-magistrate, and I met all his mates who have been pushing for, you know, both the medical and rec legalisation of cannabis since the 80s, right? And there is this amazing energy in the Northern Rivers for this to happen. So I'm almost glad that So I'm actually moving to Byron next year because I said to Lisa, I want to learn from these 
drug reform activist who's been doing it for the last couple of decades. There's so much we need to learn from them as well, you know, of all these people from Nimbin who's done amazing work. So Wow, I look forward to coming up to visit. Yes. Oh my God, you have to. You have to come visit. And like I said, I don't know, I don't know what Lisa has in her water. The the store is looking is going to look amazing. So. Can't wait. Can't wait. Well there's one more thing I want to talk about with Astrid and that is really the importance of it being a female led business that is ensuring that diversity is integrated. There are different cultural backgrounds amongst the leadership team, which I think is really important. I saw a lot of middle-aged white dudes from liquor backgrounds working in cannabis in Canada. It's really nice to come here and see people pushing back against that. I know there are plenty of those dudes around, but it's great to see a lot more women and a lot more cultural diversity. So why is that so important to Astrid's mission? It was very, very important. This is one of the branding things that Lisa was adamant about. And me personally as well, I was because when I was working at Canopy as part of HQ for Asia Pacific, you go into conferences and meetings here within the industry and I literally would look around the room and I'm like, like are you lost little girl? Where's your husband? <laughs> I was like, what? Conference? <laughs> is this a conference for like men in their 60s? <laughs> like it was bizarre, bizarre, I tell you. And so Lisa always felt passionate about that and empowering women in cannabis because when we first started, or at least when I started in the industry as well, like three years ago, which is actually, you know, people were like, three years ago, that was nothing. But I was like, it's it's a very young industry, right? So we noticed the lack of women in the industry and we definitely noticed the lack of colour. So even in May when we went to this conference down in the Sunshine Coast, and <laughs> the Astrid booth was probably the only booth where all the coloured people from the conference <laughs> You know, I laugh, but it is disappointing. It is but the funniest thing was like it was the best group and people all wanted to hang out with us because we were obviously the most fun as well and it was something I've also been feeling really passionately about like you know one of the things I really want to do more of next year is also around the First Nations part of it because we have a few patients who are you know First Nations and they have benefited so much from being on medicinal cannabis and one of the things is like there's not enough representation as well of them and as well as there needs to be an ability by government to include this medication under close to gap because, you know, we all know that they are probably most incarcerated even in Australia for small possession of cannabis and the use of cannabis is quite rampant as well. So, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity for the industry to be responsible and do something about it. But someone needs to be sort of holding the industry accountable. And I strongly hope that I'll be able to do that a bit more as well next year. You know, I get frustrated when all companies focus on is, what investors are getting and I know we're all running a business here don't get me wrong like we all have bills to pay but I think this industry really has a real opportunity of becoming an industry that does good you know I'm always rant about capitalism as well but I also feel like you know there is a potential for cannabis to 
be socially responsible. And we're still really in early days that there's a huge opportunity to change that. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the kind of cannabis driving laws, the work you've done with the advocacy for patients with the TAC. But before we do that, I thought we might break things up with the quiz. How do you feel about that? Look, I'm concerned, but I'll go for it. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to need to bear with me as I make the most tenuous link between today's conversation and today's quiz, but you're cool with it getting a little bit weird, so here it goes. Yeah. Astrid is an old Scandinavian word that means divinely beautiful. It is a traditionally feminine name which comes from the old Norse word astrior, made up of two words, as, which means God, and frior, which means beautiful. So given that Astrid is a Scandinavian word, today's quiz is based on everybody's favorite Scandinavian corporation, Ikea. So it's got nothing to do with cannabis. My link is weak, but this is an educational podcast. So let's have fun and learn something new. How you doing? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) We got five questions about Ikea. Let's see how we go. (laughs) Question one. What year was Ikea founded? 1943. 1972 or 1996? 1973. Oh, not even one of the options. 1943 is the correct answer. So we're off to a flying start. There's zero from one. Question two. True or false? Each piece of IKEA furniture is named after actual Swedish words. True. That is true. Founder Ingvar Kamprad was dyslexic, so he named the products using proper names and words because it made them easier to identify. <laughs> You're on the board, B. Well, Lisa is dyslexic too, so... <laughs> Look at these connections that I'm making. It's not so tenuous after all. <laughs> Question three. Selling 4.1 million units a year and with 15 of these being built every minute in the last five years, what is the name of IKEA's most famous bookcase? Is it Bobby, Billy, or Jimmy? Billy. Yeah, you yeah, got it. Look at that. I've had a Billy in my life. Come on, we've all had Billy. In more ways than one. Yeah. All right, you're two from three. You're killing it. There's two more to go. Question four. True or false? One in ten Europeans is conceived in an IKEA bed. True. That is true. According to an article in the New Yorker. Europeans are getting frisky on IKEA beds and 10% of the population were conceived. Pretty amazing. All right, you're doing great. So you're three from four. You've already won the quiz. This is the last question. Awesome, awesome. Question five, what is printed more each year? The IKEA catalog or the Catholic Bible? The catalog for sure. That is correct. The IKEA catalog goes out to over 180 million people in 29 different languages compared to 100 million Bibles. Apparently, the IKEA catalog accounts for 70% of their marketing budget. So, B, four from five on our IKEA quiz. You absolutely killed it. I was actually stressing the whole time. I think it's the Asian in me that I'm like, I have to get at least a B plus. Again, it's like my mum's going to hear how I went on this quiz. I only got 80%. Oh, you see how predicted I still am? <laughs> oh, that was great. Well, 
Let's move back to our cannabis conversation. I want to talk a little bit about drive change and your work with the TAC, kind of advocating for patients. One of my best friends is a wheelchair user who deals with the TAC on a daily basis. And having lived with him, having been his friend for so long, I've seen that it's an absolute nightmare even to get him the right wheelchair, the right medication, the right medical supplies. So we're obviously at this tricky point with medical cannabis where benzos, no drama, Valium, no drama, all that stuff, you can get it the next day. But cannabis, there's a lot of pushback. So that's something I want to talk about, but also Drive Change. So Drive Change is an organization that is trying to work against the outdated cannabis driving laws we've got in this country. Where are we at with this? Where are we at in Australia with our driving laws, with our roadside drug tests? What's the deal with medical cannabis and driving? Yeah, so where we're at at the moment is you still can't drive with prescribed TAC in your system except for, surprise, surprise, Tasmania. So even though Tasmania was probably the last state in Australia to allow doctors to prescribe medicinal cannabis, because for ages, even when it was legalised federally, only specialists in hospitals were able to prescribe cannabis there. And then I think it wasn't even like the, the laws changed. It was just something that they've never had anything within their legislation that said that THC presence would lead to you losing your license. So obviously it's something where we were like, how did this happen in Tassie and in Victoria and New South Wales and even in South Australia for the last two and a half years? We've had a few MPs trying to push for the private amendment bills for the drug driving laws to change. So drive change actually came about because, you know, some of us would have known David Halbin, he was a magistrate for many, many years, and he just could not go on prosecuting patients who were done at RDTs for the presence. They weren't impaired. Some of them even took their medications a week ago, did all the right things, and he was like, I cannot do this anymore. Thank God for someone like David as well in the industry. So I was doing a bit of that work in Canopy a few years ago. David was doing that stuff through his own law firm and then there's Matt Anderson and Tom from Honda Lee and Gino from Harm Reduction Australia. And we were like, why not we all come together? We're all volunteers on this campaign. And we were like, this is going to be easy. We've got this makes so much sense it's logical you know and David was like I've been doing this on my own and now doing it with a campaign we'll get this through that conversation was two and a half years ago and and actually the last time when I was in Byron and you know I was chatting about this to David I said to David I don't know how you do it you've been doing it for many more years than I have even before legalization and I don't understand why members of parliament don't see the logic okay yes they want to look at the science they want to look at the evidence they want to fund more scientific research about it but why can't we just even acknowledge that the law is not even about road safety it's about the presence of taking a drug imagine if we start testing people for taking vitamin C or for taking an opioid medication, you know. So for me, I I personally also was really naive. I was like, we're going to smash this. Victoria will be the next state to legalise it because 
you know, we did hear that the Labour government was supportive of it, blah, blah, blah. I have to say I was really disappointed, especially with Victoria and the work that Fiona had done. And, you know, there were a few key ministers here that were like, it all makes sense. It needs to change. But no one wants to be that politician that champions the fact that people can't drive while taking these medications. No one wants to come out and say, I mean, other than Fiona and politicians like even David Limbrick from the Liberal Democrat, he's been very open about it as well. No one else wants to talk about it. No one, I mean, we all have, all we have to do is look at the recent vote in the New South Wales Parliament that happened a couple of months ago, which I was absolutely outraged. You know, we wrote a huge article about that on drive change. Not only the huge disparity in the votes, but the comments after the debate. Like Mark Latham yelling out, pass the bong. Kate was sharing the story of a veteran who has served our country and done all these things and sacrificed his life and is on cannabis and lives in rural New South Wales and can't drive. And those are the people that we put in Parliament to make those decisions. When I saw that happening and then we had a couple of the other regional and rural roads ministers that laughed along, I was like, shit, we've got a long way to go. I was really disappointed. I've been speaking sporadically to Rose Jackson, who's a member of Parliament in New South Wales for a couple of years, and she is quite an advocate and what I thought was an ally for cannabis. And when I contacted her and asked her why she voted against it, all she could say to me is, oh, we told the Greens we weren't going to do it. I'm like, yeah, but what is the reason? What is the justification? So what are you compromising? What values are you trading off? And she's like, oh, I'm sorry if it, you know, appears shitty. And I'm like, it appears shitty because it is. You know, you're voted in to be a representative of your constituents. You're just towing the party line. You're just voting based on what your footy team is rather than what good rules are. So... I actually, you know, was incredibly frustrated. And I think this happens within the community a little bit. We can be scathing of people that are allies. But I really felt let down by that. And I felt let down by her and by her response. And it's disappointing because you start to think that we've got these people on our side. We've got these people who are going to do the right thing. But it wasn't the right thing on that day because a different team suggested it. Yeah. And David Halvin has known Rose Jackson for a long time. And he also picked up the phone and was like, what was that all about? You know, and this is what we talked about earlier. Like, we think we're making progress. And like, that was probably, I would say, in reflection of my year this year, seeing that, I felt really deflated. I felt defeated. I'm like, what? I'm not doing anything good at this stage, you know? And I'm so glad you did communicate that to Rose as well because it's so disappointing to see it's almost like what flavor ice cream would you like to have today I mean how can you not realize that this impacts like people's life it's not even about the driving it's about not being able to go to work not having an income not be able to afford medication I mean let's talk about it from a human rights perspective We are absolutely breaching. We're almost in a way saying you can't take this medication, which is a breach of human rights. So I I allow myself to feel angry and sad and everything, but one of the things I really want to do next year is all the members of parliament who voted against it. There there is one of our patients at Astrid who lost his licence last year, which 
this year actually, which he's a mobile mechanic. So he lost his business and he couldn't work anymore and then he couldn't continue taking his medications. I actually want those politicians to sit in front of him and and literally go, I don't understand why we need to change the laws. Like we need to just put more patients in front of these politicians. It's almost like a realisation we've absolutely lost compassion in society and politics. Yeah, when I contact my local Member of Parliament, Katie Hall, for Footscray, I only ever get responses from one of her personal assistants. You know, I understand that these are busy people and they have a lot to do, but you contact Fiona Patton and you hear from Fiona Patton. So it is completely possible for these people to listen and to understand and have compassion, but they're towing the company line, they're towing the party line, and it's not good enough for the people that elected them in. So we do have to do more with our votes and it is positive to see in victoria that you know perhaps at our most recent election we're looking at legalized cannabis party having some seats in parliament unfortunately it does look like one of our biggest allies fiona Patton, won't be retaining her seat and and i'm curious does that have an impact on these campaigns when someone like that who has been such a supporter um who is just such a wonderful advocate and ally for so many i guess what we'd call fringe causes but they're only fringe causes because not enough members of parliament are talking about them is that a bit of a kick in the guts that we lose someone like that or are these movements bigger than the individuals yeah it is a bit of a kick in the gut you know because you know i worked with fiona even in my harm reduction days and even when i was at canopy so i'm not even (laughs) gathered enough courage to see what the outcome is i think it's gonna be decided on the 13th but People don't realise in those situations we have to start all over again. So what that actually means for, for us in Victoria, for me from an advocacy perspective, is I'll need to start finding who are the members of parliament again, recreating those conversations, re-educating, trying to find someone who's able to champion this for us. So it is really, really devastating, but we have to keep going as much as you know, I'm trying to deflect potentially her losing a seat. It's like, well, more than ever, there needs to be more momentum because if we lose, I guess, her voice in parliament, we actually need to really step it up. So let's talk a little bit about the TAC. That's the Traffic Accident Commission. They provide compensation for people that have been involved in traffic accidents in Victoria. As I alluded to before, one of my best friends is in the TAC system. What's the work you're doing there with the TAC? Oh, man, bad timing for this question because this this week I have been so angry at TAC. So so we, we obviously have a few patients, well, not a few, actually, probably seven or eight patients in Victoria, right, who's been dealing with TAC from, from day one and... Workers' compensation, I have to say, it's been a bit more um, easier to deal with because they start off with like, no, and then they go, well, maybe CBD, and then they go case by case, right? So they're actually open to understanding. They are still somehow a little bit more about the patient sort of care. TAC, other than talking to politicians about drive, driving laws, have been probably one of my biggest challenges this year. I do not understand because obviously they're related to the roads minister and the roads department. They blame the drug driving laws for not being able to pay or compensate for patients' medication. So one of our patients, he finally, you know, after 
two years. So literally we know him from the day probably a few weeks after we opened. He been pushed back so many times and finally got a VK hearing after 15 months. And even then, prior to that, TAC kept pushing back on attending the VCAT hearing, right? And even at the VCAT hearing, when I read the transcript, the lawyer was just so, like, his tone, his language and everything. Anyways, long story short, he actually became the first patient at TAC approved medicinal cannabis. But even when that happened, they were like, oh, sorry, we actually only meant cannabis oil. And so he had to go back, had to, you know, request for VCAT. So one single patient, it took him, I kid you not, from start to end, almost 18 months. And not only that, all the treatments that they recommended to him prior, being on ketamine, being on, like, methadone even, like, so many things they made him do before he even got to this day. And they constantly through the whole process was saying until the drug driving laws change, we are not able to pay for it. Now, fast forward to what's happening now with TAC. Two months ago, I realized on their website, they've actually created a medicinal cannabis sub policy. So it's actually on their website saying medicinal cannabis treatment for chronic non-cancer pain sub-policy that sits under the new and emerging treatments policy. There's a criteria, there's a form for the doctors to fill, you need a specialist to sign up with. I have a patient who's currently dealing with a, a law firm, thankfully, who's fighting for him as well. He's done all the things on that criteria. Have they approved it? No. Is he going to VCAT? Yes. I've been talking, we wrote a really stern letter to TAC this week. I said, you're pretty much discriminating this patient now at this stage because he has done all the things that the criteria says. And you say on your website that if he fulfills that, there will be initial trial for payment. So again, it goes back to accountability. Even when the policy has been enacted, they just are not implementing it. They, they're they almost telling patients who's waited this long for something to be supported and be like, there's a policy. But really, we're not going to do anything about it. So so I don't understand, you know, like it's 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 always back to drug driving laws. And to me, it's like what it what has a workers like an insurance company. Like most of these patients, they're not able to drive because of their injuries anyways. You know, it's horrible accidents that they've been through. Yeah, it's a lot of hoops to jump through as well for people that whose days are already harder than ours, you know, whose, you know, extra effort to get out of bed, to get out the door, to get out the house, to get dressed, all those things to function in a workplace. So much more challenging than they are for you or I. And then they've got all these hoops to jump through as well. The mind boggles. Why do you think that they have gone to the lengths of adding a policy to their to their website and making that public, but still being so resistant? Like you would have thought that, okay, cool, they're they're getting closer, but is it performative? I think it's performative, but I also feel there's a huge sort of disconnect internally. So I knew that this policy was going to come together because I heard from the the roads minister's um, sort of advisor that they were considering it on a case-by-case -case basis moving forward. So I took word for it, right? You just sort of like 
this is good. We're making progress. Any progress is amazing. But I feel like when things like this happen, they don't train their staff. They don't tell their employees. They don't even educate their employees around what this policy means, blah, blah, blah. So I feel it's just an organizational thing. It's like they've implemented this, but people who are dealing with patients are like, nah, this doesn't exist. And I've literally sent a link in going, can you please write back to me and confirm that this is the policy that is not currently being implemented? I haven't had vaccines then, but, but you know, it's it's like what you said. For me, the frustration is not necessarily about the policy. Is these caseworkers, these managers, these specialists, they don't see the day-to-day of how hard it is already for these patients. You know, this patient who went through all the way to VCAT, he was even homeless at one stage. I just sort of go, how can you just not pay the medications, even with all the letters of support from his GP, from the doctor, from the pain specialist? And they deny it because they keep saying that there's no evidence and they keep quoting the Faculty of Pain Medicine in Australia saying this association does not support medicinal cannabis. So it's tough. Like, it's really, really hard, but I'm hoping that there will be some accountability. I think it's always about, I think we can agree now that underlying thing is we always have to hold these people and organizations accountable. Well, it's great that you said as well that it does seem that kind of workers' compensation and even perhaps Department of Veterans Affairs are looking at this a little bit more liberally than the TACR. So there are certainly sections of society that are having better opportunities than others. So it's good to hear that some are doing all right, but still infuriating to hear that a significant portion of the population is still affected. And, you know, I'd recommend that anyone who's kind of in that situation, particularly with the TAC, to reach out to you and to connect, because I think the more people that are a part of that movement, the better, right? Absolutely. And to be honest, even if they're not our patients, please like reach out to me, because to me, it's all a numbers game now, you know, like, the fact that, you know, I, I'm hoping it's not the same roads minister, but if it is, then, you know, I, I need the patients behind me. I need the patients with me when I actually reach out to them again in this re-elected government. One last thing on this as we kind of circle back to the cannabis laws. I'm sure people are coming to you with kind of horror stories about interactions with the police and, and kind of there's still a bit of a disconnect between people understanding their rights. And also when you get in an environment with the police, it can be very intimidating. It can be very uncomfortable. It can be very nerve wracking. I like to act like I've got this kind of tough, like I don't care about the police, but the second I see them, they make me nervous as shit. So what would be your advice to people dealing with law enforcement who are medical cannabis users? Perhaps they're stopped at an RDT. How should people communicate or not about their medical usage? Sure. So this is a really challenging topic to talk about because, you know, I have to disclaim that I'm not a legal practitioner by any chance, but it's also based on, I guess, what I've always leaned on, David, for advice in those situations as well. So what we see with RDTs is, you know, unfortunately, you have to do the test when you're actually being stopped by police. Most patients, they literally think that the right thing to do is to say they are prescribed cannabis. I'm sort of in the middle of those two because sometimes it has benefited them because police are, depending on the age of the police that you get, they're a bit more like, okay, thanks for letting us know. But then in other cases where you get that grumpy 55-year-old police officer, they will make sure that they make you test positive no matter what, you know. So, So I know this is a weird thing to say, but 
maybe have a look and see what the police officer's energy is like. And in Victoria, actually, I only learned this recently in a meeting with the Rose, um, with the transport like department, is in Victoria, after the RDT test, if you were to test positive, I agree, the police officer is meant to do a drug impairment test after that as a second step. But what normally happens is in Victoria, if you're tested positive, they will literally just write you the infringement notice you will get your court date and that's it. So even for me, this was new information when the department said to me, no, 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 the police officers are meant to do a drug impairment test. What they forgot to mention, which I found out later from a member of parliament, is only 600 police officers in Victoria are trained to do that. So in these cases, I would encourage you for you to ask for a drug impairment test if they say we can't do that or we can't do anything and you have to say, well, I will come back and do a blood test in a couple of days. Because, yes, because you want to avoid, obviously, if you test it positive and they're not doing the right thing but actually allowing a drug impairment test before they give you an infringement notice and give you a court date, then say you'll come back and do the test in the police station. The only downside about that, again, and this is when advice around this is so hard, is sometimes when you ask for that, they may do a blood test for you, which is even more sensitive to TAC. Yes, that's going to detect a presence that may be existing longer than just in a standard saliva test. So if they are able to do that impairment test on the spot, you're actually probably more likely to be impaired than you were just from the saliva test. Yeah, exactly. And even patients who've tested negative, like some Police officers might go, oh, we just want to do a second one just to make sure. Again, they're legally not supposed to do that as well. Okay. That's, I mean, that's really good to know. So yeah, basically if it were me, I'd be keeping my cards close to my chest as long as I could, revealing information when relevant, if you were to test positive, asking for that impairment test. If they were to ask for a second test, then you have the right to say, no, thank you. I've already had one. What they then do to you and how they treat you subsequently is obviously at the discretion of the police. But that's some that's some solid advice there. Again, not legal advice, but just some considerations. I think it's important that people understand their rights. And you start to think a little bit more about that American movie thing of like, no comment. You know, like if it's not if it's not yes. relevant, yeah. then I don't actually need to answer. I'm not obligated to answer yes. things that aren't relevant. Absolutely. That's the one thing I say to patients. You know, even when a lot of patients are like, I'm a medical cannabis patient and if they test negative, the, the police officer might go, well, now we'd like to search your car. No, they're not allowed to do that without consent and they're not actually allowed to do that with, without real sort of reason that there is a criminal offence or, you know, so no comment is a good one to have. But, you know, I'm with you, Paul. Like, obviously I'm an advocate and I'm really good at helping patients, but even when a cop's driving behind me, I freak out. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. A car could have roof racks that are slightly larger than normal. I'm like, shit. <laughs> okay. No, cool. It's just a mum driving a Hyundai SUV. It's, I'm fine. But yeah, no, it's definitely, the struggle is real. And I do, you know, I've always considered myself a law abiding citizen, but there are laws that by design make us criminals instantly. I highly recommend folks go back and listen to last week's episode with Hannah Scarlett-Turner, where we spoke about the Queensland police charging her for possession of a dangerous drug for having the crumbs of less than a gram of cannabis 
in a receptacle separate from her prescribed medication container. She had it in her car, meters away from her, but it didn't stop them from treating her like a common criminal for something that probably should have just had a little bit of discretion used for it. These cops do exist. They do want to ruin your day. Five Child Protective Services officers will dedicate their day to charging you for having literal crumbs, you know, meters away from your prescribed cannabis container. So we've got to be careful. We've got to look out for each other. And this kind of advice is helpful for that. So thank you for helping us understand our rights. Thank you for everything you do in this space, your advocacy, your enthusiasm, your realness, your passion. It means so much to have you here today. So thank you for that. As we get to the end of the episode, there's a segment called Paul's of Wisdom. And that's where you share a snappy little dinner party fact that the average person needs to know about cannabis. So B, what is your Paul of Wisdom? You know, you're sitting at dinner, someone says something underhanded about cannabis, someone asks you a question, what's the one thing you want them to take away? I think of one thing I want people to always think about cannabis is think about why this plant was actually considered or became a prohibited drug in the 1930s. You know, that's obviously a really huge question, but I always believe that looking back into the history and understanding why this was taken away from us and why all the control and drug regulations were being put on this. So I always sort of go where people have a stigma around it and everything. My first question is like, have you ever thought or looked into why this plant was considered a Schedule 9 or Class 1 drug in the first place? Always question the systems around it. That's an excellent pole of wisdom there because we understand, those of us that are passionate, understand that prohibition of cannabis is entrenched in racism, entrenched in capitalism. And really, you know, we're suffering the consequences of laws that are very outdated and sometimes not even from the country we live in. So it is important that people understand the history of that and why we are where we are today. So B, thank you so much for your time today. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Sure. So they can find me on B underscore change AU. That's actually a very new Instagram profile, but that's where you can find me. And obviously, you know, give Ashrit Dispensary a follow as well. Absolutely. Both of those will be in the show notes below. B Muhammad, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And thank you for everything that you do in this space as well. Given Tote Cannabis Conversations is written and produced by me, Paul. Music written and produced by Big Mike. Follow us on Instagram at GiveAndToke or get in touch by emailing giveandtoke at gmail.com. You'll also find us on Twitter and Facebook. All opinions expressed by program guests are solely their current opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of GiveAndToke. Content discussed in this show does not constitute medical or legal advice. Cannabis is not legal everywhere, so please be aware of local laws. 